Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Selah Fellowship podcast of our Wednesday services. We are currently studying through the book of Exodus. Please open your Bibles to Exodus as we dive into our study this evening. Tonight, Exodus chapter 30. Father, thank you for meeting us here once again by your Spirit, through the words, through the music. Lord, by hearts made right through your sacrifice, Jesus. And as we come to your word tonight, the Old Testament, may it clearly minister to us your desire for each one of us, your personal inspiration, instruction, rebuke, if necessary, Father, that we would see tonight your loving hand, not only working through the words and the life that they bring us, but also through the celebration of communion and coming together in unity with you because of all you've done and how you laid out that picture so clearly in the Old Testament, Lord. So may we take this to heart tonight as your words specifically to us, not just to your children thousands of years ago in Israel, but to us today to gain all the more intimacy with you in relationship. I ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So the priests have been taken care of. You know, Pastor Jordan did a great job last week of going through just their their practices, what they had to do. We see, saw them having, you know, as they go to the door of the tabernacle, they had to wash up, you know. And again, everything in the Old Testament, and, and I enjoy looking at it this way, especially as, you know, as we're going through the, um, the Pentateuch here, the first five books, is so much a picture for us. Well, God was writing it down as a picture to his children Israel, right? So they wouldn't miss the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of these things. And, you know, as you go through these, as you hear what they had to wear and how they had to walk and act and you know, perform these different things, I mean, it's it, it just amazing to think um, that he put down this kind of standard and they had to practice this daily. I mean, I, I can't imagine, um, you know, having to bring the sheep up here and we're laying hands on it and... Uh, transferring our sin to it and then slitting its throat so that we would all get to see what our sin caused another life to have to suffer. And that was always what the picture was, right? What he eventually would do through his son Jesus and the suffering that he would go through because of what we are guilty of, not because of his son. So it's a clear, you know, fulfillment of that, right? Now remember the tabernacle too, is also um, was to be made exactly to the instructions that God gave to Moses because it was to be a representation of heaven, heaven's throne room. You know, now as much as it can be with earthly materials, right? But he was giving us that picture again, so there'd be this like, oh, so this is what this is going to mean, or this is what he's going to fulfill, or this is what we are going to be able to have, or or the difficulty in achieving it without him. I mean, it was all a picture of what's going on in heaven, right? So, you know, he didn't want them to miss it. In fact, writing 39 books, so they wouldn't, but they did. And, you know, it's so awesome that we get to read back now with the Holy Spirit and and just identify all that God did in fulfilling this covenant salvation that he brought through his son. I just really, really love it. But we left off in in chapter 29 there, right at the end, the last couple verses, where daily offerings of lambs were supposed to be given, one in the morning and one at twilight, right? You know, that stage between light and dark, right? And so there was always to be this burning sacrifice, this visual. You get up in the morning, you see the smoke, God is among us. You go to bed right before you, you know, right before the lights turn themselves off because, you know, it's right before twilight out in the wilderness and you're going, oh, God is with us. And so just that, that assurance of God among us, God dwelling among us. And of course, that's what Emmanuel is, one of Jesus's names, that he is God among us and came and fulfilled this absolutely completely, right? In fact, he dwells in us, right? But anyway, the, the, the priests had to wash at the door and that so much is a picture of us. We're coming to God. We're coming to his throne. We're coming to him who dwells among us, right? And we need to wash up. 
Now, I don't mean in the sense of we got to clean ourselves up before we come to God. But again, remember, this is a picture of what he was doing in this relationship of being now among us. And just as 2 Corinthians right, 5.17 says that in Christ, we are now new creations. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And so the priests would come and they would have to wash. And this is when the priests now were being anointed, identified, you know, Aaron's family. They would have to be washed and cleansed. Well, we're a priesthood. Of Christ now, it says, and Peter tells us that, that we're a holy priesthood of believers, right? Don't get all hung up on pastors and women and men and all. It's that this is what God has made us now. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And the first thing he does as we come to him who now dwells in us is we are new creations, cleansed. And so that was the picture that he gave, right? And then right after being cleansed, after they washed up, right, they had to put on all those special garments and the layers of clothing that all represented something. And we went through that a couple of weeks ago. And again, that was, it's part of the Christian journey, right? We come to Christ, we are cleansed by his sacrifice, and then we are robed in his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Are you kidding? This is the depth This is the fullness of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are as righteous as God, coming to him in him, in Christ. I love that, right? I mean, but the the idea that we would have to go through this animal sacrifice, I know there'd be some of you like, I don't think I'm going to church tonight, you know, because we'd have to watch these animals suffer and die for us. And yet this was the picture that God wants us even tonight as we come to the communion table. Paul says as often as we do this, we proclaim his death until he comes. You know, we're, we're not proclaiming the life, we're proclaiming his death that it costs, the Lamb of God, that we have the life abundant now in him, everlasting life. You know, so... That was, that was the picture, and just, I love the fact that we get to celebrate it tonight, you know, in doing communion. Um, but anyway, so let's get going on this. So chapter 30, verse 1, we're going to start with now the altar of incense. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay the top, its sides and all around, and its horns with pure gold. And it shall make for it a and you shall make for it a molding of gold around it, so like a kind of a crown structure going around the top of it, right? Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they shall be the holders of the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. He shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps, At twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year, you shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So you, again, this, now the, this other implement that goes in the, the, the temple now, an altar of incense, right? So just wrote down these different things as I found through scriptures and going through that so much of the time, uh, incense is a representation of prayers before God, our prayers before him, right? Now, acacia wood it's just, a, it's just a hard wood that they've been using for a lot of things, as the Israelites have done this, right? But they covered it with pure gold. Of course, gold always re- represents deity, right? It's this eight, a cubit's about 18 inches. That's kind of the standard of where it's typically set, right? So it's 18 inches square and three feet tall, a couple of, you know, cubits tall, right? And it has rings on the side of it so it can be carried. And I'm just pointing these out because, again, as we're looking for the spiritual picture of this, like, what does that mean to us? What, is that, what, is that, what was that supposed to mean to them, to them be looking 
towards God and saying, what does this mean for us, God? You know? And again, 18 by 18 inches, not that big, kind of small, you know, compared to other things that were going on in the tabernacle and the, the weight of carrying those drapes and the curtains and the, you know, all that stuff. This is kind of small. Why? Well, because our prayers before God are not measured with volume. You know, they're not measured with length. They're not measured with um, perspiration. They're measured by inspiration, right? In fact, in 1 John, we're told that we have everything that we ask for if we ask according to his will. This is the relationship and the foundation, Old Testament, teaching us what now in the New Testament we have through Jesus Christ. And I love this, right? It, ask, and it will be yours. You know, that, this is how easy God made it. And again, he's showing us this picture. It had rings on the side of it, that, you know, poles that go through these rings, so it could be carried. Now, some of this stuff might seem kind of elementary to you, and you're going like, yeah, no kidding. But imagine like a new believer, or worse, a religiously trained like non-believer that's now trying to find truth, right? And the idea of the fact that this altar of incense, this representation of prayer can be carried anywhere. It's not about where you are that makes it happen. Prayer goes everywhere, right? It, it, any place, all the time. It doesn't matter if you're on your face. It doesn't matter if you are in church. Um, in fact, the, the, the place that Jesus kind of warns about is not doing it on the street corners, right? But you don't have to go in the mountains. Um, I had a brother-in-law, when he was first coming to faith, he was one of those... I just go out to the woods and that's my temple. And I'm like, that's really good. Did the tree save you? I would just ask these questions. I didn't mean to be mean, but those people that find this God experience in nature, that's all good. Nature cries out who he is. Nature does not provide salvation to be one with him. And that's important to understand, right? But prayer is something that can happen anywhere, any place. In fact, Jesus says the best accommodations for it is your closet. Right? Where you would do it unseen, between you and God, just lifting those prayers. And that's all that means. It doesn't mean literally you have to go home and squeeze into your closet tonight. It just means that, that prayer should be something that you do between you and God first and foremost. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a prayer partner or go to a prayer meeting. It means, though, that when it comes to you and him getting intimate and getting really serious, it's one-on-one. Right? And then he literally says that he will reward you openly as you would seek him privately, secretly. God just loves this you and him thing, me and him alone, kind of, you know, just that, that real heart of faith, right? Uh, it has horns on it, which would be one piece with it. So everything was to be carved and all put together. Now, horns are a symbol of power. So again, we've got this little, this little teeny altar that's carried around, but it has four horns that represent power, you know, symbolically speaking. Right. Also, again, it has that crown molding around the top of it, well, of pure gold. We can look at that two ways. It represents literally the, the crown of Jesus or the, the, um, the deity that this prayer altar or, or incense altar represents. Right. Or I just like in the fact that God wanted to make sure we understood nothing falls off. Nothing gets lost. Like they don't pick it up and carry it. And it's like, you know, Ira, what happened to the, you know, it's like it. You don't lose something on the way. No prayer goes unanswered. It doesn't. If you're connected with the Lord, you have assurance in his word that he hears everything and answers all things. Now, again, we struggle with the fact that he's saying no. Or he's saying wait. Or maybe he says not that way. And that just depends upon if you're one of those kind of hyper, you know, control freaks that likes to tell God how to do things. But the idea that he's going to answer, but he's going to answer his way is something that if you just take trust in, faith believing in him to do it, and yet lifting the concerns to him because he cares what concerns you today, he will answer those. And I love the idea that, you know, when Jan and I can pray and, and prayers just unfold, they're just open, they just happen. The simplest things God answers in, in, in ways sometimes that are exactly what we were hoping for. And in other times, wow, we did not see that one coming. But the assurance that he does 
deal and handle all prayers, right? I love that. And so note that so this, this incense altar, prayer altar, was supposed to be in front of the veil. So this is talking about, of course, the veil that separates. You know, we're talking the tabernacles, this one big room, kind of like this, right? But right here, there's a veil, so you don't get to see the stage. Well, which is really the Holy of Holies. This is where God shows up. This is where the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is. That's got the Ten Commandments in it. It's got Aaron's rod that budded that showed authority and who God has handed that authority to. And it has a, a, you know, a jar of manna in it because it was showing that God will provide, does provide in all ways to his children. And so just these sacred things that God wanted covered, right? But nobody could go back there, even look at it, except the high priest once a year, you know? And, and so, I, I mean, just thinking of how that must have looked in the, the condition of that, I, I have no idea. But anyway, we're not supposed to look at it. And it's not, it's not an Indiana Jones kind of a thing where, you know, lightning bolts come out and everybody turns into skeletons, although that was really cool. We don't know that that would happen. It just says, well, we know that, right, uh, Uzzah touched it and God killed him instantly, right? Because you don't touch God's glory. And that's what was behind this veil. It was God's glory. Like literally where he would meet. There was no light back there. The priest would enter in and he would see because God's glory was there. Wow. Like what is that? What does that mean? To go into a dark room and have it be light because the essence of God, his glory is there. Can you imagine the intensity of that? So this is, I just want you to kind of get this holiness because that's what he keeps talking about right this is holy unto the lord set apart sanctified like nothing else this is what we're looking at tonight and i love this that he, he just exposes us to this but anyway this is where he would meet the priest now new testament explanation right in hebrews chapter 10 verse 20 it says that um he jesus was actually this veil this veil was his flesh Right? Because God says, right? Jesus says, God, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me, through me. Right? So there's Jesus in front, keeping the holiness of God protected, keeping us really protected from the holiness because without having a robe of righteousness, we cannot stand before him. We have no righteousness of our own that gets us into the invitation into that back room, you know, the, you know, the, the, the back door pass, you know, we, we don't, right? But so Jesus was the veil there separating, if you would, protecting us, but also protecting God with the idea of the mercy seat that was, of course, covering the Ark of the Covenant. The, you know, the, the Ark was the, the box that mercy seat sat upon it. What did it cover? The law. The authority and the provision, all filtered through God's mercy. It's a beautiful picture, right? But so here this lamp, this altar of incense is outside of that veil. And it's out there with the showbread table. And I'm not, I don't want to get into all the explanations of those because we already talked about it. But right, we had the table of showbread. And that represented the communion with God, which we're going to celebrate tonight. There was also the menorah, the big lamp stand was out there. That represented the light, the light that God was bringing to the world, his truth, right? So now here we have this picture of relationship, adoration, prayer going on that's out there behind this veil. And I just love that because the idea, as you see here, that as Aaron would always have to burn this incense every, every time he, they do the sacrifice morning and night, there was always this aroma that was going to God, that were the prayers of his people, that were the presence of his people. And they were all coming through Jesus, through that veil. Now, again, New Testament tells us that that veil was rent upon the crucifixion of Christ, and it was rent from top to bottom because God himself pulled it and ripped it apart. No man could from the bottom and rip it up. They got, God himself grabbed it and ripped it down. And I love the fact that Scripture shares those kind of incense, insights with us, right? We didn't have incense on my mind now all night, right? But anyway, he ripped the veil, so it was all good. But as I said, these do represent the prayers of the saints. Let me just give you a couple of, of scriptures. Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2 says this, Lord, I cry out to you. 
Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayers be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. Just again, showing there that time of, time of prayer in the evening as well as in the morning. Any time, all the time, right? Paul tells us in Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Like all the time we're supposed to be in this in this vein of, of just going before him. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, this, you know, when Jesus said, now this is just beginning the book of Revelation, now we're just beginning, the church age is kind of past now and the, the church has been taken and now Jesus is coming forth to unloose the scroll of the earth and how now God is going to redeem now what Jesus redeemed, God is now going to say, okay, now we're going to cleanse it, right? That washing of it, right? In, in Revelation 5, 8, it says, now when he had taken the scroll, not speaking of Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and having a harp, the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So in heaven, our prayers, again, being captured and put into vessels. And it, well, let me show this next verse because it's just an interesting idea. In Revelation 8 then, when God is ready to release his judgment upon the earth. And remember, Revelation is not about Satan getting wicked all of a sudden. It's about God bringing judgment to a Christ-rejecting world. It's very important that you always keep that in mind. Right now, Satan's having some fun and doing his wicked work. But Revelation is about when God says, that's enough. Now, I'm going to end it, right? He says, he opened the seventh seal. When he opened the seventh seal, speaking of, of God, right? There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which the prayers of the saints, with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. Now just check that out. I mean, this is where it all starts now begin, the, the judgment of God. And it's mixed with the prayers of the saints. I mean, if you are in that place where you feel, and I'm sure for generations there have been so many more that have cried out so much more intensely than we have, Jesus, why have you not come? Why have you not dealt with this? Why is this not over yet? Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Don't you think this is that moment where God is saying, I'm answering now, right? So I don't, my, my thought was, I wonder if those prayers that seem unanswered to us, although God answers all, are actually being held for the appropriate time. Again, that would be that wait mode, right? but waiting until that appropriate time when God will release those prayers as part of his judgment. Because you were righteous and you were crying out to him for injustice and unrighteousness and against it and, and wanting that answer. And, and God says, now's the time to get answered. I don't know. I just had that thought I was, as I was studying this. Because, I mean, check it out. A, a half an hour in heaven of silence. All the generations that are there that have gone before us, the singing choirs, the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They stopped singing for a half an hour. Like, what could cause that? I mean, it could be the um, intensity that's all of a sudden going to take place in judgment. Like, they know, like, oh, my gosh, this is the moment. You know, so there's this, like, just this um, respect of the severity of what God is about to do. Or is it? that God quieted everybody down and said, I want to hear these prayers. I want to hear every one of them right now that my people have prayed as they go out and do not return void, but now cause what they were meant to do. I don't know. It, just a cool thought to me. I didn't want to get emotional about it, but it just I love thinking about that scene in heaven where God is so attentive to us that literally this could be what's happening, Right? But anyway, it, it, this incense is, is our prayers, and it's before the mercy seats of God. And every morning, it's just a perpetual conversation that's going on, prayers being lifted to God. And that, for us, is a, is a picture to look at and say, this is what God would like of me. 
he would like conversation with me. Not a monologue, not me telling him just what's up, but uh, you know, a dialogue where I would, I, yeah, I get to speak. He asks me to. He wants me to. I want to hear from my kids. My father wants to hear from me, right? But I also want my kids to listen to me and to give me a chance to talk back. So does our Heavenly Father. Listen. If you are born again, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and that inspiration, education, insight, voice that is still and small is able to speak to you if you will quiet the noise or kill the noise if you're whosoever, right? But it, it, that's what it's all about, the reality of who we are in, with him and he in us. This is what this picture is all about. And I love it. And, and, this is, and of course, these, these prayers being lifted up all have to go through Jesus and, and, and really just representing what, what we're crying out. Now, I also want to touch on the aspect that Jesus is our prayer warrior in heaven. Because tonight as we go before the table, if you're coming to a place where you don't think your prayers are being heard or they're not being answered or you messed up, and you're not sure where you are, let me assure you that today Jesus has spoken your name to the Father. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 11 says, By God's will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We have been sanctified. That's set apart, remember? Um, Once for all. Let me not forget to put that on there. Once for all. We set apart, right? And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That's what we're talking about now in the Old Testament, right? Which can never take away sins. But this man, capital M, that would be Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So we know this, right? Jesus Ascended to heaven, he is sat down then at the right hand of God the Father. What is he doing there? Well, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Do we need intercession? Yes. Everybody should be like, I should hear an amen. Somebody out there, right? Okay, please, right? Jesus, give me it. I mean, we need intercession at any given moment because we're not always walking the way we're supposed to walk. Even though his spirit is guiding us, even though we have access, he doesn't. But he is always making intercession for us. Now look at verse 9 also. It says that no strange incense should be ever put on this. It's got to be God's recipe, right? And um, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. It must be Jesus. There is no option. There is no man upstairs. There is no big kahuna. And whatever other catchphrases, people that are uncomfortable or have not come to the realization that there is a loving father who created them, sent his only son to die for them so he could have relationship with them, and now they want to refer to him as though he's some kind of a fictional movie character or something. It's not right, right? In, in John chapter 14, verse 12, we're told this, Jesus speaking, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. And of course, because we've had a lot more time. Anybody over 33 has had a lot more time to do works of Jesus than Jesus had. He had basically those three years of of walking in intensive ministry, right? Because I go to the Father. He's making it clear, right? And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, this goes right along with what John said in 1 John, where he said, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked for. Right? If you're in his will, if you're walking according to how God would be leading you, filled with his spirit and thinking and having the heart of God as you face things, are going through trials, um, dealing with situations, right? If you have his heart, you're praying according to his will, and his answer is yes and amen. 
right? So you're a disciple. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. This wasn't a general crowd. Hey, anybody out there want anything? Just ask it in my name. I'm good. I gotcha. You know, this is not that. This is fulfilling God's kingdom literally here on earth. In fact, in John 16, 23, he says this. In that day, meaning when Jesus goes to, you know, be with the Father. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So I don't want to get really theologically deep here, but I know I didn't understand this when I became a new believer, so I always like to touch on it. When you pray, you are praying to God the Father. Now, I'm not going to get all hung up on this, but God the Son is, you know, yes, we come to God the Father through God the Son, speaking directly to the God of all creation, universe, truly. He has invited us behind this curtain now because it has been rent, ripped the flesh of his son so that we could have access to him. We get to call him Abba, Daddy. That's what Abba means, Daddy. It's like an endearment term, right? And yet we come in Jesus' name because if I come to Abba, Daddy, and Steve, it ain't working well, okay? Because Steve doesn't have anything to stand on unless it is Jesus, his righteousness, and the robe that he has given me to wear. So I, I, I just like to make sure that we all understand that you are able to have access to the throne of God. You know, he never slumbers, never sleeps. He's never unconcerned about you. And if you're thinking, well, how can he be thinking about me because there's that war going on over here and there's all these starving kids over here and I don't know, like me, I just am not that. You're thinking in time. You're thinking like an earthling that is in a terrestrial body here and you're, you're trying to say that God has you know, a way of either being too busy for you, forgetting about you, or is going to get back to you later. No, it's like his thoughts for you are more than the sands of the seas, continuous all the time because of what Jesus did. And this is what this is showing us, continual prayer all the time with this, this altar, right? Which, of course, understanding that, that we get even a greater just excitement or intensity when we understand Hebrews then 4.16. Let us therefore, because of all this, go boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I love that how in time of need come to me, come boldly. That's not cocky, that's confident. Why? Because of what he's done. What he showed us he would do and what he now has done in Jesus, he says, now come, come on, come to me. Like confidently that I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to answer you. I'm going to, in fact, answer you even better than the answer you think I should answer you with because I'm going to give you life exceeding and abundant. Oh, Lord, but what if my life is one of those chosen to suffer? Then all the more you reward when you get home in heaven. Remember, this is just temporary. He is the conclusion. He is the eternity. You know, and we get to be there, right? So I, I just love this. He also points out there, right, on this altar of incense, I don't want no, I don't want no burnt offerings. I don't want no drink offerings. I don't want no grain offerings. Why? Because the altar of prayer is not a place where we go to sacrifice for atonement. It's a place that we get to go because atonement has been made. So he's not saying, you know, you owe me a little something-something before you come to me with that list. No, he's saying, come, my son already covered the cost. You just come now and speak with me. But also listen, because I do have something to say. I do have something to tell you. I want to encourage you. I want to let you know. Right, but he's already paid the, the the cost. So, watch out that you know you don't come in that way. Now, Isaiah fifty nine two does tell us that sin will separate us from God. He that he won't hear our sins. His ear turns away. Right, but again, we have the assurance of Jesus being our mediator daily. Jesus being our interceder all the time. But, I mean, there's probably a long line. I don't know. No, don't think in time. God exists outside of time. This, this is his omnipresence, his omnipotence. This is, this is almighty God. Don't box him up in 
in our small earthly understanding. This is truly who he is to you and me through Jesus Christ. And he says, man, come and bring it. And if you've got some kind of struggle going on, you understand there's something that you know my spirit's speaking to you and conviction that's going on, then 1 John 1, 9, confess that sin. He is faithful and just to forgive that sin and to remove, depart that unrighteousness from you. He returns you back to that first day, one moment when conviction fell upon you and you knew you were a sinner going to hell and the Spirit of God revealed him to you and you became born again. Old things have passed away. You were a new creation in Christ. That's what happens every time you go to 1 John 1, 9. You know, and remember, confession isn't telling him what you did. He knows what you did. Confession is a word that actually in the Greek means agree with. You agree with God that what you did was sin, was wrong, was a crime against him, and that he will be faithful and just to forgive it as you confess it and bring it to him. It's, it's just an amazing deal. This is the we can't even understand the, the depths of what he's given to us. But just this idea of coming to God in sincerity and what he does then in restoring us. And amazing it is. We've got to move. Then the Lord, Lord spoke to Moses, verse 11. Take the census of the children of Israel for their number. Then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them. And there may, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone, including among, everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it to the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So this is interesting, just in the, in the sense that it is... Um, this is what in Matthew becomes actually the temple tax. You know, they challenged Jesus with having to pay. But God sets it up here as a ransom for his children. So what, what's all this mean about a census and counting the people and God wants them to pay a ransom? It sounds like we're having to buy ourselves out of something. or you know, The whole idea is that a census is for counting to figure out how many you got. How many kids do I have? Let's see. One, two, I got three. You know, how do I know that? Because I had them. Well, actually, Jan had them, but we had them together, and I own them. Now, I mean, I don't own them. I mean, they're all married now, and they got their own kids. But the idea that you, whatever you can count, you only count because it's yours. Like, if I count my kids, it's like, people say, how many kids do you have? I go, three. Well, and then I got this other guy that's, you know, but, and I kind of bring him alongside. But I only count what's mine. And that's why God said, now, I don't want you to take a census by counting the people. Remember, David did that in 2 Samuel Right, and, and a curse, like something like 70,000 people were killed that day. Why? Because David told Job, he goes, like, I, want to, I want to count the people. And Job's like, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think we should do that. And he goes, no, 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 it's going to be all right. Just count them. I want to know. I want to know how many I've got, how many are mine in my army, so I know what I can do with my army. And God, God just looks down and goes, David, they're not yours. They're mine. Do I need to teach you? I give and I take away. And so God did. He took away 70,000 people. You know, it was like, it was crazy, right? But in that, then God had to make a way where his people would understand the cost of being his. Now, Jesus gave it all, right? But we have to count the cost when we become disciples. And there is a recognition. There's an understanding that this, isn't, this wasn't just um, sloppy agape. This isn't just like everybody gets into heaven and there's people that are saying that. This is, no, I want to follow God and there is a cost for it. And he's just making his people ransom that or pay that as they are among them. Is there, is there um, among, you know, his people? So it's, again, it's a recognition of I am yours, God, and I'm going to pay this. It's not, they don't ask it of anybody who it's not. And yet this was a way that God could do it still 
They could know how many people were in, how many people were helping, but it wasn't showing ownership of the king. In fact, it was showing ownership to God because the people were all giving because they understood they belonged to God. That's all it is a picture of, is just that redemption of, um, of, of, of participating, right? Now, I, this is, I understand this is what God has done. And note, too, and I think it's important, that he makes it very clear that the rich don't pay more and the poor don't pay less. Everybody's equal at the cross. And that's really what that is saying. There is no, gee, there's so much more saved than I am. Or I'm not as saved as they are. You know, and Satan will use that on you, won't he? Somebody's got a life that's more ballistically like fruit-bearing in ministry, and you're feeling like God somehow just gave you the sour, you know, lemon of, of lamentation or something. I don't know. But you're just somehow, you didn't get it, you know. No, it's a lie. It's a lie of Satan. All he has to do, remember, is disable you from being what you're supposed to be. He doesn't have to make you an addict or, you know, somehow take you into this, you know, mobster life of lasciviousness or... He just has to get you to sit down and do nothing. And he's won because God's kingdom doesn't grow. And, and please note, and I, oh, I wish I could teach the next chapter because 31 is all about the artisans and how God gives certain people special giftings to serve his kingdom in a way that then draws people to him. And we all have that. We have all... 1 Peter 4.10 says that every one of us has been given a gift of God from God that we might manifest him, his grace, to those around us. Every one of us. Nobody gets to sit down and do nothing. Now, that's not me telling you. That's God's word telling you, right? Anyway, so please recognize that's what it's saying here. Man, everybody is equal. God, the souls of, of man and women are equally as precious to God, every one of them. None is more valuable, none is less valuable. And that's all God was trying to show his people is, you all have equal access to me, whosoever will call upon the name. Right? It's open to everybody. Love that. Okay. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar meaning where they're, you know, sacrificing the animals and stuff. And you shall put water in it. And Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in the water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they wash, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash with their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him who has descendants throughout their, out their generations. So, again, this always serious, so serious to me when he says, or they will die. You know, I mean, this is like, now we don't have that kind of, remember, we don't live under that law kind of action anymore, Old Testament. We do live under grace. But God is trying to show the severity of what he's talking about here. And here, obviously, he's talking about the responsibility of the priests to wash. Now, this is not the washing when they were anointed before they went into the tabernacle. That was that, that one that we first talked about, right? This is, an, this is like you're serving God now. You need to be washing all the time, right? And, of course, we understand that to be so true because Jesus had his moment in John chapter 13. John records it with Peter, right? Jesus bends down. He's going to wash the feet of Peter. And Peter's like, ain't no way. You are going to wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. I cannot have any part with you. It, it, we, we're, this won't work. We're not going to be together if I can't wash you. Now, you know, then Peter says, well, he says in, 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 chapter, nine, in chapter 13, verse 9, he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And now Peter's like, bathe me. Give it to me all, Jesus. It sounds like such a holy thing, right? But then Jesus rebukes him and he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. Then all Jesus is talking about is the world gets us dirty. 
everything does. The music does, the language does, the TV does, the whatever. It, it's all working against us because Satan rules this world. Adam, turn, Adam turned it over to him and he's been very patient at how he's kind of possessed everything. Now we can redeem those things, but in the process, we do get dirty by them sometimes. And, and when I say sometimes, I'm not meaning maybe this month, maybe next month. I'm talking like maybe this hour every day. You know, I'm going to try not to get you dirty till you get out of here and then you're on your own. But you have to take that dirt to Jesus that he will cleanse it. And again, that goes back to 1 John 1, 9. Confessing it, he's faithful and just, removes that sin. Right now, we were all washed when we came to him at that moment of salvation. 1 Corinthians six eleven tells us that we were washed, we were sanctified, set apart, and we were justified. What does that mean? Just as if we'd never sinned. That was our moment of salvation right? By the Spirit of God. So, yes and amen, but the world dirties us up. Our thinking, our talking, our interaction with people starts to go the way of the world. And so, this is what he's talking about here, right? He's talking about references like in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, the washing of the water by the word. The washing of water by the word, right? In fact, in Acts in, in Acts 3.19, it tells us that in this coming to Christ, in the word, there is a refreshing to us. I don't need to have a, hand, a show of hands out there of how many people can get discouraged, get beaten down, get depressed, get sidetracked, get unfocused, lose faith, lose heart, lose your countenance, you know, falls. And you go to the word of God and he refreshes you because it's living. It's alive, right? And it can get in to the most joined together bone and marrow place in your system and separate it to his purpose and plan and truth against the lie and the defilement of the enemy of the world, right? And our flesh, because, you know, we get, old, we, we get in sometimes and we're not supposed to, right? So we have to watch that. But knowing that we have that place of confession, right? And I think it's interesting, too. Notice that the, the labor, the labor, which is like just a big tub, right, has no dimensions. I mean, like the incense, that, that was, you know, the ark, everything was very, and this big, this many cubits. The labor has no dimensions because God's mercy and his grace has no limitation. Being able to go to him and wash 70 times 7, right? It's like, just keep coming. Just keep asking. I died for you, for the sin. So just keep coming, right? Now, he also tells us that it's made of bronze. Bronze is the metal of judgment in the scripture. You know, gold is deity. Um, bronze is judgment. And as we're getting ready to celebrate communion, I'm just going to read what it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 32. Now, Paul just has said, until that, as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let that man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not, to, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, now this is New Testament. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. And please let me explain. That word sleep means dead. People had died because now the Corinthians were really jacked up, right? They were... They were partying at the communion table. Like, give me some of that good wine. You know, like, you know, that's like, whoa. They were not respecting what this meant, what they were declaring by taking it, right? And so Paul is saying, before you do that, don't be a fool. Discern, examine yourself. Discern the worth of this. Judge yourself. Now, this is what it goes on to say after saying that some have died, right? For if we... It's your choice. It's you have an obligation. We have, I have a responsibility. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we might, that we may not be condemned with the world. 
See, the whole process of coming to God is all about restoration. It's all about reconciliation. It's all about unity. It's all about communion with him. And he's, that's what he's wanting to provide with us. And yet Satan will tell you, run, get away. No, it's, you don't want this. You want your rights, your anger, your opinion, I don't, whatever it is. You want to live in that dark place. And he says, no, no. Let me, quick, just let me turn. This morning, men's prayer was so awesome. Um, you know, Coffee Traders was closed today. If any of you guys showed up there, it was closed, right? Because they were, they were putting in a new espresso machine and stuff. The manager, the owner, it was the owner, called here at the ministry yesterday to tell us that they were going to be closed, but that she would let us in so we could still have our Bible study there this morning, right? So, and they were going to put out drip coffee for us for free and everything. So we show up this morning and they've got these big things of drip coffee made and all of their baked goods are out. You know, they got the scones and the muffins and all that stuff, you know, all of it was free for us. Well, it was free for anybody, but it was, you know, who else is going there? Cause it's got a sign on the door that says closed, right? But we were able to go there, get our stuff, go in there. There was nobody else in there. There was, there was no disco playing. There was no jazz. It was like amazing. Um, so we were, that's just a little personal thing that drives me nuts. But anyway, we were able to go back where we always go, put the tables together, and we had our Bible study. And I'm leaving, and so I saw Jesse. Jesse's her name, and I was like, Jesse, thank you so much. You know, it, it's, it can be so difficult, you know, having to reschedule and go someplace else. She goes, hey, she goes, we love having you guys here. I wanted you to know that you are welcomed here. Wow. So here's, you know, I don't know, a dozen guys plus sitting there with their Bibles all over their tables, having a Bible study in this so I don't know where you get your coffee. If it's not Mud Man, if it's not Mud Man, I just want to suggest downtown Whitefish at Coffee Traders. Okay, they uh, kudos to them. But anyway, so this morning we started. Um, that's just a glory to God. What an amazing that she would hunt us down. She's like, I, I just was. I had to find Pottersfield Church. I knew it was somewhere around here. Uh, so I don't know how she connected Salem and that all, but anyway, she did. But we started. The book of Psalms this morning, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaves shall also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Oh, amen. We all want to be in that place, right? Amen. Give me it, Andrew. Come on. Amen. All right. There it is. Right. But it goes on to say the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly. Now, here it comes. Here's the connection with Corinthians. Right. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the ungodly shall perish. A sinner can't stand in God's righteousness. We can, because we're wearing his righteousness. We can literally stand in the judgments of God. If God's going to speak to you tonight and say, got to get this out of your life, got to stop with this. We got to move this away. It's not the best for you, my son, my daughter. I have the plan. The judgment is to restore you to unity with him, to ultimately fulfill his plan for you, what he created you for, and to move you forward in power and strength, right? Undefiled. The unrighteous. They stand in judgment. They don't want to hear it. They, they, they don't want to get near that, right? So take to heart tonight where Paul is inviting us to come in and stand in the judgment of the Lord and then partake of his table, right? It's an awesome thing. All right, let's finish up, and then we'll go to the table. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quantities of spices. So he, he, he's taking myrrh, and he's taking sweet cinnamon, and then he takes uh, some cane and he mixes it all together, you know, in, the, in these different forms with a hint of, of uh, olive oil. So big vat of, you know, uh, anointing. And you shall make from the holy anointing, you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an anointing compound according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting. And the ark of the testimony, the table, and all the utensils, the lampstand, the, and the utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt sacrifices with all the utensils, 
and the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. You shall, and you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me through your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh nor shall you make any other like it according to its compound. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever, whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on any outsider shall be cut off from his people. So again, this seriousness of making this perfume. But notice what God wants this perfume to be, this oil, right, to be put all over the implements, the the utensils, the labor, the altars. It's like, you know, now you'd be thinking, you know, be a little bit here, a little bit here, you know, and we'd be, you know, smelling a little bit better as the priest because just think about the death that's going on here right now. All the sacrifices, all the blood. Now, I'm not a gamer kind of guy that goes out and kills game, but I would imagine we can probably ask JJ what it's like to gut a deer. Probably a little bit smelly. I don't know, but I'm just guessing. Okay, oh, Theo. Theo would know. Okay. <laughs> We won't even, I don't even get, I'm going to get sidetracked and we can't do that. But anyway, I'm sure the smell isn't really wonderful, but that's not why God does it. Oil, again, we're looking for the symbolism, what it's saying to us here. Oil is always a symbol in the scriptures of the Holy Spirit. And what God is saying by this is, look, this is my compound. This is my spirit. This is my symbol of separating all these things unto my holy service. It's all to be done in the power in the holiness of my Holy Spirit. This is what he's saying here, right? The Holy Spirit, as it's symbolizing here, is to always show God's work off, not to show us off. That's where, again, some churches and their practices can get a little skewed because we got people that are more interested in being looked at than the work of God that they're supposed to be exampling by the power of his Holy Spirit. But this is literally why he says, don't pour it on the flesh of any man, right? And, and, and what that means basically is this is not cosmetic. This is not so you can say, hey, look at me. Hey, smell me. Don't I smell like God? And yet how many are out there falsely in the church getting people to smell them as though they were truly anointed by God and his Holy Spirit and it is just a cosmetic use. And God says, you will be cut off from my people. Lord, Lord, didn't we? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform miracles? Didn't we proclaim and prophesy your word? Depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, man, that scripture is so frightening. When you think of the deception that believers can walk in and think that an imitation of God's Holy Spirit work is somehow worthy of truly what he wants to do by his spirit in us to work. It's, it's also wrong, right? God is not into fleshly imitations, and people that do it will be judged. And the Lord said to Moses, sweet spices, stack, and uncha, and gul, and I don't even know how to pronounce them, but with pure incense, with these sweet spices, there shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound, according to the art of the perfumer, salt, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put it, and, and put some of it before the, the testimony of the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourself according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. And again, this idea of insincerity, in, of fakeness, of uh, it, it going, we're going back to where we started, right? With incense and what that's supposed to be and what that's supposed to look like to the Lord, a sincere heart, continuously going before him, continuously in prayer, honesty before him. And you have to understand, of course, God is always interested in our heart and truly what we're doing, not what outwardly we look like we're doing. That's where he's always trying to be, right? It's always about the sincerity of heart. And that's how I saw this. And again, this warning that um, don't try to imitate my smell. 
And truly, we do have a smell. And that's what I conclude with tonight. This verse from 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses, right, imparts or gets out there, right, the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as sincerity, but as of sincerity, but as of God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. That's where we are tonight. Sincerely now coming. And if you have something that you feel is, um, is diffusing a wrong aroma from you, let me just put it straight. How do you smell tonight? This is the place to take care of it. At the communion table. As the worship team comes up, and the guys come out and pass out the elements. We take this time now, as the scripture tells us, to examine ourselves. That we might be judged by the Father, revealing something to us that we need to understand about ourselves. That he might reveal that all the more for restoration, for cleansing, for purity, for departation of that sin. And that unrighteousness to put us back to that place of purity with him. Right? That we might not be judged with the world. Because unrighteousness will be judged. They can't stand in front of God. Thank you for joining us for this study through the book of Exodus this evening. If you would like more information about Selah Fellowship, please visit us on the web at selahfellowship.org. While you are there, feel free to check out some of our other messages and past book studies. Thank you again, and God bless.